Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. The copies of the Yoga Sutra are uh, up there if you want to reference it. Um, if anybody needs it. Um, tonight I'm, I'm going to uh, just speak about one word from the five principles that we were exploring last week. Um, for those of you that have missed a few sessions last, uh, what we've been doing is every week more or less we've been studying the Yoga Sutra. Um, what line did we end with last week? There it is. 120. So chapter 1, line 20. And Patanjali had talked about um, almost like a five-fold path. He's usually known for Ashtanga Yoga or um, the eight-limb path. Tanga is a limb. Um, so the eight-limbed path. But actually, he sets out five limbs right here, uh, which is you know one of the lovely things about Patanjali and something that confuses people is he actually has a lot of different practices. And so just to go over them one more time, the first one was Shraddha, which last week I translated as the faith to doubt. Um, virya, or energy, which I translated as enthusiasm. The third was Smriti, which I'm going to retranslate tonight, so I'll just leave that alone for now. Um, then... What was next? Pragna? Samadhi. Oh, Samadhi. Integration. Or the collapsing of subject and object. Um, and last was Pragna. Or the wisdom that naturally arises in practice. And I felt after we talked last week that there was more to go through in this term Smurti. Um, partly because that gets translated from the Pali root, root Sati which is the verb to remember or to recall. And it gets translated into English as mindfulness. And I think nowadays, uh, because that's just become such a pop word, I think it's important just to spend a little bit more time with it um, to understand what it means. And um, it's also interesting for those of you who practice in both the yoga and the Buddhist traditions that this is a place where they converge. And... Um, 
these same five principles occur in the Buddha's teaching exactly in the same order, and it, they're called the five powers of mind. Um, so you can look them up in the Pali Canon. Um, So last week was a pretty full week for me. I taught a two-day retreat. Some of you were there. We had 60 people just sitting and walking the day in silence, except for a talk that I would give each day. And, um, and then this past weekend, I was in Wisconsin teaching at a Zen center there, where I was told, actually, I didn't even realize, but I've been there 10 times in the last like, five years or whatever. Um, and so a lot of time being quiet. And um, sooner or later, when people are doing this practice, um, I, it's almost like a deja vu experience where somebody eventually puts up their hand, especially this happens on retreat after a couple days, and asks this question, what's the point? Or what is this pointing towards? Or the question this past weekend was, where is this going? And, and I love that question. And um, I usually never answer that question. And just, you know, the job of a teacher in a way is to take questions and hand them back to the student when you're being a teacher. Um, but actually tonight I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, because um, we don't really need more Indian philosophy. Or, you know, I'm here doing this work because I love this work, but I don't want to try and make people Buddhist or yogist if there's such a thing. Um, I, I turn to this practice because I think it can really help. And um, So instead of creating more temples and building more yoga studios and that sort of thing, just what can we do with this practice when we need help? And we all need help in some way uh, because there's a kind of basic restlessness. Um, that encounters consumer culture that creates this. And um, so I'm interested in the yoga that goes beyond yoga or the dharma that goes beyond dharma. And every spiritual practice in a way or meditative path or whatever word you want to use um, is actually going in the same direction which, funny enough, is home. It's taking a journey back home again. And the interesting thing is that you uh, are born at home, and then you leave home, and then you return home. It's so simple. And you can't actually come home without leaving. And so we have to leave home and make this journey, and the journey is always pointing in the same place, which is home again. And one thing the meditator comes to realize is that you, you, you're not separate from home. You, you can't ever be separate from home. And if your life can only happen in this moment-to-moment -moment way, Home can't ever be outside of this moment.
and also that home is not fixed. So sometimes as soon as we say home, we get an idea of home. Most people, when they first think about home, think about family. And, uh, and then that makes home separate from you. There's a you that's in relationship to your family. And your family is home. And um, if you ask people uh, what is most meaningful to them, usually you get, especially if you travel outside of this culture, the most important thing is family. Family is the most important thing to people. In their core values, family is there. However that's defined. Mm -hmm. And when you ask people what makes them suffer the most, it's also family. And family can be the most painful kind of suffering because you can't leave. I mean, you, even if you travel to the other side of the country, you can't leave your family. You can't get away from family in this external way. That's why I always say to people at this time of year, when we start to make plans and know that we're going to have to visit family uh, or visit other people's families um, and things get busy, I never like to tell people to come to center of gravity, but I always do it in December. Just when things get busy, and we start to feel the pressure of meeting family again and all of the internal, internalized versions of family that are us, um, this is the time of year that you should commit to practicing in a more steady way than any other time of year. Because some people are so stressed out that they're exhausted before they even get to the event. Um... And even when your family isn't trouble for you, there can still be a lot of pain because siblings lose each other and children lose their parents. And um, I think maybe the most, most terrible pain also is, you know, uh, um, parents who lose their children. I mean, in a way, we're more used to it going the other way around. And so um, one of the uh, original questions that begins koan practice, which some of you are familiar with, uh, is actually before the original koans, you know, in, old, in old ancient China, when somebody would come to study with a Zen teacher, a Chan teacher, um, the first thing the teacher would ask is, where are you from? And it's a trick question, isn't it? The teacher's not asking, you know, what city are you from? Mexico City, Thornhill. Uh, the teacher's asking, you know, where are you from? Where is your original home? or the original trust that we lose when we go to school. So to tie this into the technical detail of smurti, to remember, to recall, when we're practicing meditation 
and something shows up in awareness, um, some people get really fixed at the beginning of their practice and take the technique in a little bit too rigid of a way where whatever shows up, they just keep staying with the inhale and the exhale. And two things can happen. One is it can be too much energy trying to stick with the inhale and the exhale and not a kind of background of calmness. And the other is there can be a little bit of repression. And I think when I first practiced meditation, this kind of repressive or denial piece uh, was the most exciting part of meditation because it was at a time where there was so much feeling and sort of being overwhelmed by anxiety and different emotions that I would get into meditation practice and I would stay so close to the breath I wouldn't let anything else in. And that only lasts for, well, you can do it for a few years until you actually start studying with the teacher and they ask you what's happening in your practice and then you'll see quickly it's not working. Um, But you can kind of use meditation to not feel. And um, John Wellwood and other people write really clearly about this. They call it spiritual bypassing. Where you can use the technique to avoid certain other things in your life. Um, But the word mindfulness literally means to come back and to return. So that means when a thought comes up or a sensation arises, you don't push it away. You let it arise and... If something becomes really dominant in awareness, you let it be dominant in awareness. You note that it's there, and then you return to the breath. And this is really important, because you're you're allowing what's there to show up, to unfold, and then you're returning to the breath. And sometimes you have to do this move two, three, or four times in succession, before what shows up loosens up a little bit and then starts turning into something else. So this is a really important piece. Number one, that what mindfulness is, is returning home. It's, It's coming home to our present experience. And number two, it's not a denial or a repression or suppression. Repression is when you're pushing things away unconsciously or subconsciously. And suppression is when you're consciously pushing things away. Meditation is neither of those things. It's opening to what's here. And so that means you're allowed to leave your breath. You're not going to get punished or something. You're allowed to leave your breath and notice what's there. And then you just come back again. You just come back again. It's a really important piece so you don't get too tight around the breathing. And um, So it occurred to me this, this weekend, especially, and this kind of been a theme for the last week for me, is um, just the way that um, this practice is a coming home. And we could even call it like homecoming. <laughs> I'm reading a wonderful book by uh, a rabbi named Michael Lerner, and uh, it's his first book. 
And he talks about how there is violence uh, built in structurally to our culture. There is uh, power splits built in structurally in all of our institutions that flow, again, into our relationships. And what he points out is when power is built into anything, there is also powerlessness. And this is something that, you know, we all know. Uh, Many of you, I know the work you do, and we spend a lot of time thinking about and acting on the way that these imbalances are built into even our ways of communicating. But what he talks about in this book is there's another kind of powerlessness that's not articulated enough, which he calls surplus powerlessness. Surplus powerlessness, which is the powerlessness we feel when we don't give value to our own lives. And he says it's equally as destructive or even more so because it feeds the structural forms of power and powerlessness in really profound unconscious ways at an economic level, at an ecological level, and a psychological level. And for me, there's a kind of piece around thinking not just about self-judgment or negative self-image, but really understanding this sense of surplus powerlessness, which is in a way being far from home. It's being caught in such fixed ideas about ourselves that we forget who we are. Or those of us who derive so much uh, meaning from doing action in the world. Some of you do amazing things in this country. I wish sometime we could have like a night where people just can take a turn, uh, people who come through these doors and talk about what they do, because some of you do, you know, such amazing work, and I sometimes wish I could introduce each other. And and hopefully we can do more of that. Um, And yet, how much energy is wasted when we can sometimes spend years and years doing precise, effective work outside of our bodies and yet still struggle with this surplus powerlessness. And um, this is, in a way, not having found our way back home yet. And the paradox is you can't come home until you've really left and this is what yoga calls renunciation, right? Until you've really left. And um, likewise, you know, we can't really come home to the breathing unless we've really, what the Buddha calls, disentangling the tangle. <laughs> and you can't deal with powerlessness unless you can recognize value. And that begins in your own subjective experience. And often people put up their hand, especially when I teach psychologists, and say, well, what about people who have low self-esteem? I mean, they, you know, they need value. But actually, people with low self-esteem, you know, they tend to have such a fixed version of themselves that can be even tighter than the people who are really inflated with themselves. Right? It's harder to see, but it's, a, it's just the flip side of narcissism, you know? 
And it's a kind of like theology reverse theology. God exists, God doesn't exist. And it's just the same thing with the self transplanted in there. Self is this, the self is this. So home really is always just in the middle of things. In the middle of life, we sit here in Parkdale and streetcars are going by. There has not been a single siren tonight. Or if there's a strike or something, or <laughs> everybody's meditating. Or... Um, right in the middle of things, the middle path. And um, this is such an important point because I think sometimes meditation is taught in a way where I'm trying to find this calm spot and everything is a distraction. You know? And in a way, that's the same as saying, I'm waiting for the world to change, which is the same as being in a relationship and say, I'm waiting for you to change so I can be happy. Have you ever done this before? <laughs> made a semi-career out of it. <laughs> if you would just, then I'd be okay. Um, I wanted to read a little poem. This is uh, called The Cabbage um, by Ruth Stone. No relationship to me. You have rented an apartment. You come to this enclosure with physical relief your heavy body climbing the stairs in the dark, the hall bulb burned out, the landlord of Greek extraction and possibly a fatalist. In the apartment leaning against one wall, your daughter's painting of a large frilled cabbage against a dark sky with pinpoints of stars. The eager vegetable opening itself as if to eat the air or speak in cabbage, language of the meanings within meanings, while the points of stars hide their massive violence in the dark upper half of the painting. You can live with this. I thought maybe a good definition of home is you can live with this. And I don't mean you can live with this as passivity. It's like sometimes in meditation, as soon as I talk about acceptance, people hear allowing everything and passivity. But in a way, we can't really take loving, clear action in the world and in ourselves unless we're really bearing witness to what's happening. And so you can't really bear witness unless you can totally accept the complexity of conflict um, in the same way that no matter what's going on in your life, um, conflict is always going to happen. I mean, I don't know about some of you, but, you know, um, have you ever sort of been in the middle of conflict, you know, some huge war? And then you just 
have to take a break because you're so exhausted. And then you go and you look at a river or something or a tree. And then, you know, at some level, the, the tree is not touched by the conflict. Just like in our minds, we have like stories and stories and we can do, especially in those of you that are real thinkers, you know, you can think about every tangent of a story. I have a friend who writes novels and she said that the way she writes is, you know, she writes and then she leaves her chapter and then she comes back to it for a month. She finds one word that stands out. She writes around that word, leaves it for a month, comes back, finds one place that stands out. And next thing you know, she's got this like hundred page chapter. And in a way we're doing this moment to moment, right? Going off on all these. And yet below those stories are deeper stories like underwater streams flowing in the dark. And then we think those are the important stories in our lives. And then underneath those stories are even bigger, deeper tectonic plates that only dreams can actually shift around. And then below that, nothing. Quiet. Just quiet. And... Um, it's important that we can access all those levels, especially in times of stress or the month of December. Philip Larkin wrote a great poem like this, uh, about this, called Home is So Sad. Home is so sad. It stays as it was left, shaped to the comfort of the last to go, as if to win them back. Instead, bereft of anyone to please, it withers so, having no heart to put aside the theft. And turn again to what it started as, a joyous shot at how things ought to be, long fallen wide. You can see how it was. Look at the pictures and the cutlery, the music in the piano stool, that vase. One more poem. You know, I didn't get in all the poems I wanted the other week, so now's my chance. <laughs> this is my last. This is the last one. This is one of my favorite poems, actually. Um, I used to know it by heart. I don't anymore. Um, I also was thinking of this today as a poem about home coming. Uh, this is by William Carlos Williams. It's called "This Is Just to Say." I have eaten the plums that were in the ice box and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. I'll read it again. <laughs> I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. We're home all along. It's so sweet and it's so painful. And our job as meditators is really in the midst of that pain uh, to come home. Pain is not a distraction. Anxiety is not a distraction. These are not hindrances in our practice. It's our life. But what we do 
with pain, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain. Actually, sometimes I don't even know what the difference is. Um, what we do with that pain in our minds counts for everything. And it's the difference between being home and trying to escape. And trying to find home in things that don't lead us home. And that's the wisdom piece. Is That's the discrimination piece. It's to stop trying to find ways of getting rid of our discontent outside of ourselves. Those paths lead us away from home and not back toward home again. And then we come home, literally. Sometimes I love hearing stories about people who go on really long retreats, people who go spend a lot of time in India, people, or even people who stay here and go on long retreats, um, three years, three months, however long. And uh, have, some of you have even gone on you know, short experiences of pilgrimage or wherever, and have huge things happen to you. This can even happen just traveling. You go away for a year, and you come back, and you've had these huge experiences that we could call homecoming experiences happen to you. And then you literally return home, and nobody can tell. And the ego it gets a little bit upset, because you know, you've changed and you've become really spiritual, and nobody can tell the difference. You're still the same person. <laughs> And uh, we want somehow them to see on the outside. My good friend Norman Feldman made a vow when he started practicing many years ago that he would only wear robes if it would somehow um, help him further his practice along. And so this is in a time in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, where people who were studying uh, Tibetan Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, who were uh, Canadians and Americans and a lot of British people, they all had to wear robes. They all wore robes. And he didn't wear robes. And he always said, if, if there is a way where I need to deepen my practice by wearing robes, then I will wear robes. And he still doesn't wear robes. And for those of you who know many of his colleagues, you see the pictures of them, and they're all wearing robes. Um, You don't need robes to embrace what's showing up in your life. This isn't the best kind of meditation. This isn't the only kind of practice. There are so many different ways and paths and so on. But if this is the one that you're exploring, stick with it for a while. See how it goes, and every once in a while you can ask yourself, what direction is this heading? And now you have the beginning of a response but it's not an answer for you. I can't do it for you. You have to make your own journey home. And the other interesting thing about coming home, aside from the fact that no one recognizes that you've changed, is that at some deeper level, you have something real to offer. And uh, I don't want to make anyone a Buddhist or a yogist, and yet I know some of you have taken this path of really studying and practicing, daily practice, for years. And 
I like hearing the stories about how when you come to work, you have something real to offer. And um, some of us who have studied psychology can know so much about the mind and so little about how really to work at the level underneath language with what the mind is and how it operates and what it isn't. So to sum up, we're always home. And so you can't go home because that would make home something separate from you. You are not separate from home. And home can only occur now. You can't be free if you can't be free right now. I would love to keep reading poems, but I'll just do that at home tonight by myself. So let's finish chanting, and uh, then I have a few announcements. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. <clears throat> awaken. Awaken. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of discontent. May all beings be free from every form of discontent. Namaste. Namaste.